Uh, good morning, Grace Chapel. How are you guys? Awesome. Good? It's good to be back with you. Uh, it's an honor to be here this morning. Um, just a few weeks ago on Father's Day, uh, I had the opportunity to be with you guys and teach from Scripture then. Um, and I had a blast the last time I was here. You guys are a great audience. Um, and so uh, I'm excited to be back with you today. Um, just to give you, for those of you who weren't here last time, maybe a little bit of background on me, who I am. Um, Jake and Amy are dear friends of mine and my wife, Jill's. Um, we are the pastors at another new church plant here in Knoxville called The Calling, right? Um, so we're a new community of Jesus followers right here um, in our city as well. Jake and I became friends over the last few months, and um, it just feels like we've known each other our whole lives at this point. Um, some of our best buds, and it's been a great blessing um, getting to know them. Um, as I mentioned, this is my wife, Jill. Wave at everybody. She's the pretty one right back there. Don't know how I pulled it off, but thank you, Jesus, I did. Um, and so one of the highest honors in ministry, um, you may or may not know this, is trusting somebody enough to teach scripture to your congregation when you're not even there to make sure they don't mess it up, right? Um, so I'm super honored that Jake and Amy would trust me to take you into God's Word today. Uh, and if there's any guests, I want to give you a bit of a disclaimer, right? Please don't judge Grace Chapel by me today, right? Just come back next Sunday. It's going to be much, much, much better. Um, and that's all I'll say about that, right? Um, in the meantime, you're going to have to settle for me. And uh, all jokes aside, I really, really do hope that our time together this morning uh, is a blessing to you and encourages you in your journey with Jesus. Right? Um, so you guys have been in a series for a few weeks called Lynchpin. Uh, it's based out of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and you've been talking about things that anchor our faith, right? The hinges that our lives turn on as followers of Jesus, sort of the, the linchpins that hold everything together. Um, you've been looking through the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to be honest, when Jake told me Deuteronomy, I got nervous. That's like taking a shot from half court, right, as a Bible teacher. It's, uh, it's not easy, so bear with me, right? Um, but it's been an awesome series. I've been listening to some of the, the messages from previous weeks, and you've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy through the eyes and perspective of Jesus, right? Tying together Moses and his departing message to Israel with the gospel and the good news that Jesus brought us in the New Testament. So I'm going to continue with that today, or I'm going to do my best to, right? Um, so let's begin with a couple of passages from the New Testament, uh, and then we're going to look back at the story of Moses uh, for some insight and perspective. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. In verse 21. Um, if you are more of an eyeball person, I see you out there. Uh, it's totally cool. Just scroll on over to Matthew. Um, if you are more of like a parchment scroll uh, Torah type person, just try not to block the view of anybody that's um, behind you with that. Uh, <laughs> if you're like me and you just totally forgot all of that at home, um, as I frequently do, just look behind me on the screens. They're going to have the verses right up there for you. All right. A um, little bit of background on this passage. Um, a few verses before this, this is where Jesus has asked his disciples, right? Who do people say that I am? 
Uh, and many of you know that story. You've heard it before. And they answer back. Say, Some say you're Elijah, come back to earth. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? That was a huge understatement. Um, and then Peter nails it with a little help from his heavenly father, right? And he realizes that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah that Israel has long awaited. Um, and so we're going to jump in at verse 21 and see what happens next. So verse 21 starts like this. It says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's skip forward a little bit to the book of Philippians chapter 3. While you turn there, um, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. Uh, who at the time of this writing was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. And so that context is really revealing. Um, and in the opening passages of Philippians, you kind of get the sense, if you read what Paul's saying, that he, he doesn't really know whether or not he's going to survive his imprisonment. Um, he talks about things like potentially being poured out like a drink offering, um, about how he's having a tough time deciding whether he wants to live and be set free or whether he wants to die and be with Jesus. And so the reality of this situation is that he might go free or at the whim of Caesar with one word, Paul's life in his entire ministry may be over. So these words in Philippians 3, these are the words of a man who doesn't necessarily know if he's ever going to see the people that he's writing to again. All right, so if he's got something important to say, he's saying it right now. So with that context in mind, I want you to listen to what Paul has to say about the story of his life. We're going to start in verse 3. He says this, We don't place any confidence in physical things. Although I could have confidence in my physical qualifications, if anyone else thinks he can trust in something physical, I could claim even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a descendant of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a pure-blooded Hebrew. When it comes to following the Jewish laws, I was a Pharisee. And when it comes to being enthusiastic, I was so enthusiastic, I was a persecutor of the church. When it comes to winning God's approval, 
by obeying the Jewish laws, I was perfect. Now watch this in verse 7. These things that I once considered valuable, I now consider worthless for Christ. And it's far more than that. I consider everything else worthless as well. Because I'm much better off knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. It's because of Him that I think of everything as worthless. So I threw it all away in order to gain Christ and to have a relationship with Him. So one last heads up before we dive in a little bit to Moses. Um, today, I like to talk to people who, who feel like they're losing. Right? Or maybe, maybe you're here and you feel like you've already actually lost. Um, and you find yourself surrounded by our modern Western socio-political views and, and you kind of find that your life just doesn't really measure up with the metrics of success that we find in our society. Stuff's just not working out the way you want it to. The dominoes just aren't falling over how you saw them coming together. Um, and you find yourself immersed in this society and maybe, depending on your background, even, even in a church culture that tells us that if we're not successful, or to use Christian verbiage, if we're not blessed, right, that we aren't living up to our potential. That you aren't experiencing God's plan for your life if you don't have those things. Because, right, we all know that God's plan is for you to be blessed and to be comfortable and to be successful and above all, happy all the time, right? Because God would never write hardship or loss into your story, would he? Never do a thing like that. So if those things are happening, it's got to be your fault, right? It has to be because of some failure of yours. It must be something that you failed at, or maybe, right? Maybe it's because you don't have enough faith. Maybe that's why it's not going right. Or, I love this one, if it's not your fault, we can always run the classic play called Pin the Problem on the Devil, right? Anybody familiar with that one? <laughs> if things aren't going smooth, it has to be the devil. That old devil, he's good at what he does, right? Uh, my favorite has always been, because I'm a musician and an audio guy, anytime anything goes wrong with the sound system, right, Alex? Whose fault is it? Satan. <laughs> has to be him. Here's the problem with that line of reasoning. Those kind of thoughts don't mesh very well with the narrative of Scripture or even with history. Because when we look at those, we find that hardship and sacrifice and loss actually kind of seem to be hallmarks of a holy and consecrated life. We find instead that Scripture is full of these beautifully ruined lives that according to the world's understanding have been totally wasted and just shattered in a million pieces. 
But according to kingdom metrics, they're a beautiful witness of God's grace um, and His love. So I want to I run a few possibilities by you, right? Um, based on that idea, the beauty of a ruined life. And to illustrate that, I'd like to look at the life of Moses for just a couple of minutes. Because honestly, when you stand back and look at it, Moses had a pretty messed up life, guys. I know that that's not the popular interpretation. We kind of see Moses as like a hero. And this intrepid visionary figure, you know, at the head of the tribe, crossing the Red Sea. Nothing ever gets Moses down. Um, but honestly, it was a rough start for Moses. So I want you to just take yourself back. Can you imagine putting a baby, if you're a parent in this room, in a tiny float tube and just launching him into a river like a message in a bottle? This is how Moses starts out. All right? It's not like his mom has much of a choice because Pharaoh has ordered that all male ch children in Israel um, be killed at birth. It's been a lot of years since the patriarchs that came to Egypt under Joseph's rule um, passed away. And, and Joseph is long gone. And the Israelites have multiplied in Egypt into this great nation, right, over the years, over the decades. Um, so that Egypt was filled with them, is what one passage says. And then a Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't know him. And things begin to get unpleasant for Israel in Egypt. That's this interesting side note that persecution is actually the precursor to their deliverance and ultimately their promised land. So it could be that hardship actually has a place in God's plan after all, right? So Pharaoh makes these Israelites into slaves. They're put to hard labor. Not exactly what we would imagine um, the prequel to God's promises being. Right? So Moses, I want you to get this perspective. Moses has been born into slavery. He's born to a family of slaves. And he's condemned to death before he ever even draws his first breath as a newborn. Tough start, right? <laughs> Not rosy so far. I want you to put yourself in his mom's shoes. What would you do, right? You're going to let your son be executed or are you going to take your best hopeless Hail Mary shot at giving him a chance to survive? So Moses is born into this raw deal in Egypt and his survival comes down to like a roll of the dice in some bulrushes surrounded by crocodiles and stuff. It's crazy. So he escapes death, he gets better. He escapes death only to become the de facto son of the very man who's oppressing his people and making them slaves. He's nursed as a baby by his own mother. And if we read between the lines of the story, it becomes clear that his mother instilled this sense of identity into Moses. So he knows that he's a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. It's likely he stayed with his family until he's about 12 years old, at which point he goes to live with Pharaoh's household, um, with Pharaoh's daughter. Even his name, Moses, is given to him by Pharaoh's daughter. It's an Egyptian name. 
talk about an identity crisis, right? It's like being away from your family at some sort of elite boarding school, but the faculty are oppressing and beating and abusing your family back home the whole time. So you live this life of luxury, right? While the people you love are being destroyed. Can you imagine what this had to be like for Moses? Like the inner turmoil just simmering for years as he grows up with all this dysfunction. There's got to be times where he enjoys it though, right? Because I mean, he's, he's royalty. He's in a palace. So he's got to enjoy like the feasts and the servants and the the people there to meet his every whim. I mean, like what teenager wouldn't love that, right? Has there ever been a 16-year-old that would not love a staff of servants and a personal chef? This is what Moses has. At the same time, it's coming from people who are destroying the people that he loves back home. So he lives in the royal household from 12 to the age of 40. Right? Emotional roller coaster. Join the good life. Wearing royal robes while missing his true family and watching them suffer. It's happiness and wealth mixed with frustration. And one day it all just boils over into this explosion of anger. He's walking through the job sites where the Hebrews are working one day and he sees this Egyptian beating one of his countrymen. And so Moses kills him. I don't have too many kids in here. You heard me right. He hid, hid the body and everything. It's like a crime drama. Moses did this. Let's talk about a low point. I'm sure you've been mad at people before and you've, you've been angry at injustice, but I bet you didn't do that, all right? So ask yourself, how bad must it have been for Moses <laughs> that he finally just snaps like this rubber band that's just been stretched way too far? And then he has to run for his life. <laughs> this keeps going, right? I promise this is going to get better, y'all. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going somewhere. So he flees to the wilderness. He's out of the palace into this like subsistence culture where he's living like bare grills off of bugs and creatures and digging for water in the hot desert sun in the wilderness of Midian. And it's in exile in a wilderness on the run for his life that Moses comes to the mountain of God. And it's on the slopes of that mountain that he stumbles across a burning bush that changes everything. After he's lost the comfort of his royal family, after he's lost um, the love and closeness of his real family, by the standards of ancient culture, in even modern society, Moses is not having a great run <laughs> at this. He's lost his leadership potential. He's lost his place with his countrymen. He's separated from everybody he's ever known. And it's in that place of loss and hardship that God sets fire to a shrub in the desert. 
and out of the flames, he calls Moses by name, right? Most of you are probably familiar with the rest of it. I won't go into too many of the details, how, how he returns to Egypt. He faces down his former step family. There's miracles and there's plagues. And finally, there's the exodus. And then this right, right dramatic apparent dead end without hope at the Red Sea. I mean, like Moses had a stressful life, guys. In this miraculous parting of the waters, and Moses leaves Egypt behind forever. And he's 80 years old at that moment. Think about this. Two-thirds of his life is already behind him. And he's headed back into the wilderness again. We've always heard this story told with the focus being on the high points, right? Moses out front with the staff. If you step back and look at the simple realities of Moses' story, it was not an easy story. Scholars estimate that Israel was anywhere from 600,000 on up to possibly 2 million or so people who are now relying on Moses for leadership and safety. And scripture paints a picture of him as a guy who's not necessarily like a great leader. Like he's not good with logistics. He kind of makes some mistakes. He, he makes some bad calls. He needs help from people to make good decisions. Tough. Can you imagine two million people relying on you to do something you're not great at doing? That's two Knoxville metro areas. <laughs> Stressful. These people then begin to complain about everything. Two million of them. Think about that. Moses' right-hand man, his brother, his flesh and blood, Aaron, and his sister Miriam, they betray him to the people. They try to overthrow his leadership. <laughs> it's a crazy story. It's like a movie. And then... He goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God face to face. Remember that part? He's coming back down the mountain with like the blueprints for a dispensation and commandments on these tablets that we still live by today. And he returns to find the whole nation has turned away and betrayed God while he's gone. They've turned away and betrayed him too. So I want you to get this picture. Moses has risked his life and lost everything to help these people. So can you imagine what's going through Moses' mind as he's walking down the mountain and he sees them dancing around that golden calf? So it's a safe bet he didn't feel like he was winning at life at that moment. <laughs> Challenges continue to pile up. And at one point, he becomes so frustrated with the situation that he even disobeys God. Right? Um, instead of speaking to a rock, he strikes it twice with his staff. And it's like you can almost feel the frustration come off the page when you read that passage. Moses is angry about where he is and what's going on and what they're faced with. And his disobedience has a consequence. Now, 
he doesn't get to enter the promised land. Right? So after all of that, all this hardship, all this sacrifice, he doesn't even get to complete the mission. He never gets to lead Israel into the promised land. It's one of the most poignant passages in Scripture how Deuteronomy ends. Because Moses catches this glimpse of the promised land, of this dream that he's had for so long, 40 years. And then he dies without ever setting foot on the soil of that country. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. It says, Then Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab, and he climbed Pisgah Peak, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead as far as Dan, all the land of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, extending to the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the Jordan Valley with Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to Moses, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyesight was clear and he was strong as ever. And the people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of mourning was over. And then verse 10 so telling, he says this, There's never been another prophet in Israel ever like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So it's not just a rough start for Moses, it's a rough ending and a tough middle in between, right? By earthly measurements, Moses never finishes his work. He fails at the very end of his journey instead. And we want Moses to win, don't we? Right? We want this to turn out like an underdog story. Like <laughs> Moses pivots at the very end and makes it. We want him to cross in to the promised land and like spike his staff in the end zone. Like we made it. That's not what happened. So by human reckoning, Moses didn't have a very happy life. Instead, he had 120 years of hard uphill battles. But there's something else going on beneath all of that that's kind of woven into this passage at the end of Deuteronomy and all throughout the story of Moses. And that's this. Do you notice the posture of God in that passage? Because we think that this is like some harsh punishment from Moses, like God is is angry at Moses and he's judging him and he's not going to allow him to enter the land, not going to let him cross the finish line. That's not at all the tone that God's taking now at the end of Moses' life. Instead, the only time recorded ever in human history, God buries Moses with his own hands. Like his best friend. 
You can bet that when Moses took his first step from this life into the eternal one, that he received a hero's welcome. And the last line holds this key, right? There's never been another prophet like Moses who God knew face to face. So what's the point? What's the point of Moses' story? It may be that the end is the point and was the point all along, right? So what does Moses get out of this long, chaotic, tough, uphill life? Because he doesn't get success. He doesn't get fulfillment at the end. He doesn't get any of those things. So what, what's going on? What Moses gets is that he gets God himself. No one else had the level of communion with God that Moses did. And there's some crazy stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, where like God speaks and sends angels and crazy signs from heaven and like flaming mountains and burning bushes and all kinds of stuff, signs and wonders. But only with Moses does God ever meet face to face. So Moses loses everything of earthly value success comfort family friends but he gains the one thing that has true value which is communion with God himself he's an old testament example pointing to what Jesus shared in our text right back to the beginning whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. All right, so I want to be careful to point something out. Right? This is not simply a feel-better message for folks who have had unfortunate things happen. Right? I'm not here to simply inspire you to feel better about loss or hardship. My hope today is instead to inspire you to throw everything away for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because that's literally what Jesus is describing in Matthew 16 when he says, lose your life. Whoever loses his life. The, Greeks, the Greek is uh, apolume, and it means to fully destroy. The root word literally means to ruin. So whoever tries to save his life will ruin it. Whoever destroys his life for my sake will find it instead. So here's the reality about following Jesus, right? Is that there is no path that follows in the footsteps of Jesus that does not come with a cross attached to it. If you're going to follow him, at some point you will carry a cross of some sort. But why do we think the opposite? <coughs> Why do we think we're not blessed? Why do we think we're not in God's will or plan for our life when we face tough situations? I would say, in fact, the opposite. If there's not a cross involved, then maybe we need to look around and evaluate and ask ourselves whether it's really Jesus that we're following. If there's no endurance, there's no sacrifice, there's no hardship, then I'm not sure we can call that 
following in the steps of Jesus because scripture identifies Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Doesn't sell well at Barnes and Noble, does it? But it's what the Bible teaches. Life of a disciple never came with a guarantee of happiness, but it does come with a guarantee of gaining Jesus, right? Second, notice this, that Jesus didn't say whoever loses his life will find it. He said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, right? So it's all about the motivation. It's about the intentionality. It's about setting our hearts on Jesus, guys. And the deepest communion that we can possibly have with him, the deepest devotion that we can possibly give him. And if that costs us everything, then so be it. Let's go. And then at that point is when we start to find our lives. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. That the degree to which we're willing to lose everything else is the degree to which we will gain him. And in doing that, we're going to actually find the life that we were seeking in all of those other things. Kind of reminds me of that really annoying jingle for those ice cream sandwiches. What would you do for a Klondike bar? Now that that's stuck in your head, you're welcome. We'll go with you the rest of Sunday. Klondike bar sales will skyrocket in Farragut this afternoon. <laughs> So ask yourself this morning, what would you give for Jesus? What would you give to find and live a real life with him? If the answer to that question is anything, then you're actually well on your way to finding that life. It's closer than you think. This is the lesson that we learned from Paul. In our passage from Philippians, these things that I once considered valuable, I now consider worthless, right? And he's listing career accomplishments and religious prowess, things that he thought were like righteous and noble acts that he's done. Because Paul in the first half of his life was like the definition of success for a first century Jewish leader. Like it didn't get any better. He was on the fast track. Paul was climbing the ladder. He was not only climbing the ladder, he was headed to the top. Odds may have been good. He could have become the high priest one day. But here, toward the end of his life, when he has one last chance to say some stuff to people that he doesn't know if he'll ever see again, we find him saying that all of that is worthless instead. Steady says that for the sake of Jesus and a relationship with him, he's willing to suffer the loss of not only that stuff, the loss of everything, all things. <laughs> he says that he now counts everything as junk or trash compared with knowing Jesus. I'll be careful how I say this, because we do have kids. Actually, the language he uses there, when you read the Greek, is a lot stronger than that, if you get what I'm saying. It's a vulgar word that he uses. 
<laughs> so you know that shock factor when you hear somebody who doesn't normally use rough language <laughs> suddenly say something like really extreme? Whoa, <laughs> that's what's happening here. Paul drops a bomb about how worthless all of that stuff is because he's crystallizing for us how little he now thinks of earthly success and accomplishments. He's saying it's all been ruined for him compared to the more excellent reality of knowing Jesus Christ. And what we learn from Paul is that the minute we come to realize that our life, that your life, that my life is not about the things that you do or accomplish or the stuff that I get or even the way that you feel, but it's about communion with this amazing person named Jesus. That's the moment that we have begun to find a real and true and everlasting life. Scripture teaches us that if Jesus is the reason for your loss, then it really isn't a loss at all. Because no matter what you lose, you're gaining Him. I'm going to wrap up. We're almost done. Only 45 minutes to go. <laughs> no, I didn't get any of you this time. <laughs> Tried that joke last time doesn't work twice. Um, so I was driving home from Kroger a couple of days ago and I was praying about this morning and about this message. I'm um, just asking God to give some clarity. And I had one of those moments where God kind of gives like an object lesson. Those of you that have had them, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so we've been having these, these summer afternoon thunderstorms. You either love or hate those, right? Um, and so I'm driving home from Kroger. Um, and way off to the southwest over a corner of the Smokies, there's this big thunderhead just like rearing up into the sky. It's a big, dark, ominous storm. It looks like something out of Twister. So most of you are probably too young to remember that movie. Um, it's a dark cloud. <laughs> Uh, and the timing is just perfect because it's sunset and when the sun gets to this perfect point in the sky, it just paints the whole side of that thunderstorm. Like the most amazing, brilliant shade of red. It's one of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen. And it's painted on the side of this swirling, chaotic thunderstorm. And I could just sense the Lord speaking to me and start crying in the car like I always do when he does that. And I started to realize right, that when we make this decision to just lose it all, to just lay it down and go ahead and walk through the storms, to go ahead and face them and just dive in, to give whatever it takes to gain him, that something kind of magical happens. And Jesus, the Son of God Himself, starts to shine down on those very storms that we're walking through. And they're transformed into something 
that's just completely beautiful. And all of our mayhem and hardship and loss, it turns into a canvas. And he just starts to paint and make beautiful things. And grace just paints this masterpiece over all of our disasters that we're going through. So I wanna, I wanna kind of bring it home to some of us today. So where do you find yourself? Everything may be great. Like you may be at the top of the ladder, <laughs> view from the top floor apartment, corner office, you know, life is good, paycheck's great. Or you may be weary and well-doing. Some of you today might be in a whirlwind of like chaos and you've made sacrifices that nobody knows about. Or maybe if they do know about them, they don't understand. They kind of think you're crazy. <laughs> and maybe you've done all of this for the sake of Jesus, right? You want to be with him. You feel like he's leading you, felt like he's calling you. So you're following and it doesn't go well. You just want to see his plans for your life come to pass and, and see his purpose fulfilled in your life and, and in our city and our neighborhoods. And, but if you're honest, you're just tired. And it's just hard and it's just tough. And you feel like you're pretty much doing the opposite of winning. To you, I want to say congrats. Because even though it doesn't seem like it now, you have found your real, true life. And you've already started living in ways that you can't imagine. Even though it may not feel like it, you have begun to come alive following Jesus through those things. So just a word of encouragement to you, right? We don't usually find that life that I'm talking about while we're going through the junk. It's usually afterwards. The beauty and the clarity comes after everything is ruined. The resurrection comes after the death and the burial. Right? So, don't be weary in well-doing. For, what does it say? We will reap a harvest in due season if we don't give up. There is a harvest with your name on it. And his name is Jesus. And he's with you in every single step of whatever it is that you're facing or going through. Second, you might not be struggling, but it might be that God's been kind of messing with you and you felt this like drawing in your heart about some things. God's been moving on you. He's been speaking into your ear, just whispering into your soul. And you're faced with some tough decisions in your life that you feel like maybe he's leading you to take kind of a crazy move, take a giant leap, take a big step, risk some things. And depending on how you choose, life may not be so great. <laughs> life may not be easy. It may be harder, actually. God might be calling you to give something up. He might be calling you to suffer a loss or to, or to lay down and sacrifice something that means a lot to you. 
I just want to encourage you today, right? Do it. Take the leap. Like, make the step. Go after Jesus. So let go of whatever that thing is that God's been speaking to you about because there is nothing in this world that compares with knowing him. And it's worth whatever it costs to you to follow him. Right? I know that that sounds crazy. I've had conversations the last few months with people who are like not super familiar with church or the Bible and all that kind of stuff. When we talk about these kind of things, they're like, I mean, that's just crazy. Why, why would I do that? <laughs> why would God ask me to do that? Right? I mean, it's, it's harsh. It seems hardcore of Jesus to ask for like this costly level of devotion. So what gives Jesus the right to like request or, or require that I lay my life down and endure hardship and sacrifice and, and lose things? What is going on there? What gives Jesus the right to ask us to lose our lives for his sake? It's simple. Jesus lost everything in order to gain you. And now you have the opportunity to do the same. So even though it's hard, it's easy. The life of following Jesus. Um, it's really simple. We just give everything else away to gain the one thing that really matters. And we discover that that is a linchpin in our lives. Probably the linchpin, I would venture to say. In losing our lives for him, we actually find them because we find him. And we discover that losing is actually winning. <laughs> and that Jesus is everything we could ever want. Everything we could ever need. And that he's been with us every step of that entire journey. And that is the beauty of a ruined life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. For your just overwhelming, undeniable grace that we find in the pages of Scripture, that we feel just wrapping itself around us this morning, right here where we are in Knoxville, in our lives. Um, and we thank you for just the testimony of hope and endurance that the life of Moses is. What a servant. What an example. So I just pray that for those of us who are here today and we're facing similar circumstances, things are hard and and we're enduring and we're, we're low on trust and we're low on hope. Just pray that you encourage and restore this morning our faith and our trust in you. Because <laughs> you are a good God. 
and you're leading us into communion with you. I just pray for those of us who are here, who you're drawing our hearts and you're, and you're asking, you're requiring something of us. That it'd be easier to not do. Just give us grace, give us courage. Um, speak clearly to us. Give us what it takes to, to jump out of the boat and just dive into what you have planned for our lives. Above all else, we just thank you for the sacrifice that you yourself are. 